Please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30. And the guys have some Bibles. We want everybody to be able to look at the passages as we look at them together. So get their attention. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, they'll get one to you. It's marked, actually, to Proverbs 30. So you can turn right there. And we're continuing a series through the book of Proverbs, the title of which is on the screen, Living Wisely in a Foolish World. And the book of Proverbs, by its very nature, is a topical book. It's arranged according to a number of topics. And so instead of what we normally do, taking a passage and focusing right there, we have a number of Proverbs each week focused on a particular topic for that week. I'll introduce today's topic from Proverbs in just a moment. During the 1994 FIFA World Cup soccer tournament, there was a player from the Colombian team who accidentally let a ball ricochet off of his leg and into his own net. It turned out to be the winning goal and it eliminated favored Colombia from the uh, tournament. Days later, the player was murdered. He was shot 12 times and with each of the bullets, his assailant yelled the word goal. He was shot because he allowed an, a goal to go in accidentally off his leg. Now clearly someone is attributing outsized significance to something which in the grand scheme of things is relatively insignificant. But how many of us argue about whose team is best? And we fret over the fate of our favorite team. If they win, I'm in a good mood. If not, it's perhaps best to keep a safe distance from me for a while. The fact that many of us can become so rabid about stuff like, say, football, shows our ability to assign undue import importance to trivial things. Now, I think most of us would agree that it's silly to get upset and to experience episodes of anger and even depression based on the fortunes of a sports team. But we can all fall victim to the overemphasis of a particular thing in a particular area. So let me ask you, what concerns you? What occupies your mental energies? What do you find yourself searching and researching on the internet? What do you argue and get angry about? Now you know, the answer to those questions could be good things. What concerns you? The answer could be, and actually should be, the glory of God and the advance of His mission. And what occupies your mental energies? Well, the answer could be, how can we see God's name exalted by people coming to Him and growing in Him and using their lips and their lives to honor Him? What do you search and research? God's word would be a good answer. And issues related to living for him and helping others to do the same. What do you argue and get angry about? Well, even that can be productive. If we can argue without being argumentative. And we get angry only when God's character is slandered. That's called righteous anger. But I fear that some of us are in the first category that I talked about. We give ourselves to what's relatively unimportant. And too few of us are motivated by what's really important. And then I think there are many of us who are in between. 
We're focused on things that are indeed important, but they're not the most important. And we worry, and we fret, and we argue, and we search, and we lose sleep over it. Like what? There's an election coming up in two days. And the media have been hyping that election for a year, especially so since Labor Day, and many of us have taken the bait. This is the most important election in our lifetime. I've heard that about every election since I was old enough to vote. Well, I've thought about it a bit myself, and I can tell you this. That if the Democrats keep hold of Congress on Tuesday, this country will be a mess. And if the Republicans take control of Congress on Tuesday, this country will still be a mess. This morning, as we continue our series in the book of Proverbs, I want to look at some of what that book has to say about the important role of government and of the governed. But also how, when compared to other biblical priorities, it's really not as important as many of us think. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we come to this important subject about which you have much to say in your word. And we bring to it, as always, so much baggage. Some of it good, some of it erroneous. Some of it generated by the culture and by the media. And so I pray that you will help me to speak clearly to this important issue from your word, and that you will help all of us, myself included, to be able to look at it as you give us a proper perspective in Scripture. And help us each to leave this place with a better understanding about the relative importance of government, of politics, and our role within it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our 40th president, Ronald Reagan, used to say often that government is not the solution to our problems. Some of you know the end of that. Government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem, he would say. And so for many, government is the problem. Well, there are definitely problems with government. But what are those problems with government? And I have an outline for you inserted in your program, and I encourage you to follow along. Where I say first there, the problem with government is this. We have some blanks for you to fill in there, so it's just designed to keep you awake. But the problem with government is, first of all, those who govern. The problem with government is those who are in power. It's those who govern. And so the Bible tells us in Proverbs 30, where I ask you to turn... In verse 21, notice what Proverbs 30 and verse 21 has to say. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. Now let me just stop there for a moment. It's kind of a weird way of saying things, but that's done throughout the book of Proverbs. The first time it's done is is back in chapter 6. It's done several times in chapter 30. It'll say six things are a problem, yea, seven are an abomination to the Lord. And it was simply a literary device 
to name seven things and to say at least two things about those seven. Say one thing about the first six and then say another thing after you mention the seventh. Or say three and then four. So it's a list, it's simply a list of four things. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. Well, what are they? Verse 22. A servant who becomes a king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and a maidservant who displaces her mistress. Now, what are those about? We're most concerned with the first of those. A servant who becomes a king, but they all four have something in common. They are someone who has been elevated to a position without proper preparation. Someone who has been suddenly elevated to a position and therefore has not prepared for it. And one of those is the category at the beginning of verse 22, a servant who becomes a king. And this is something that trembles the earth. Something that's a calamity when someone who is not prepared is governing, is leading. And the book of Proverbs says that sort of thing a number of times. And so let's look at a few of them together. Chapter 16 and verse 12. Proverbs 16 and verse 12. Kings detest wrongdoing. For because a throne is established through righteousness. The throne is established or the government has stability as a result of righteousness. And this righteousness needs to be demonstrated on the part of those who govern and those, as we'll see a bit later, those who are governed. And so the throne is stabilized. It's established through righteousness. And that happens, and we're going to look at three passages together that give three characteristics of a stable government and what characterizes it. Chapter 29 and verse 4. A stable government, one that demonstrates righteousness, is one in which, Proverbs 29.4, by justice a king gives a country stability, but one who is greedy for bribes tears it down. Or look at verse 14 of that same chapter. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will always be secure. Notice that a stable, a proper government has concern for the poor. And then thirdly, chapter 25 and verse 5. A stable, an established government will be one in which the leader or leaders solicits advice from those who can dispense wisdom. 25 verse 5. Remove the wicked from the king's presence. And then his throne will be established through righteousness. And so what is the problem then with government? One of the problems is that we don't have those who govern who have these sorts of characteristics. The problem with government is those who govern. And they are not good enough. And they are not smart enough. Whatever they think to govern. They're not good enough and they're not smart enough. I want to I lay both of those out. 
What's the problem with government? First, it's those who govern because they don't govern the way we've just seen described. And they don't do so because they're not good enough and they're not smart enough. Now, when I say they are not good enough, I don't mean they don't meet a certain standard compared to, to other people. I mean they are not morally good enough. And they are not morally good enough from a number of categories. First of all, and most important, we see in the Bible itself that human rulers are not ultimately good enough. You think about in the Bible how many rulers, how many kings you know of, how many of them were good enough. Solomon wrote most of Proverbs. Solomon was not good enough. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, lamenting the way he had lived his life. He was given wisdom by God to see it clearly. And despite that, he lived as he did. How about his father, David? King David was not morally good enough. A man who had been given everything and every opportunity decided to commit adultery. Decided to cover that adultery by having the husband of his mistress murdered. In the Bible, those who rule are not good enough. But then in our own day, you need to know that the liberals are not good enough. The Democrats are not good enough. They're not morally good enough. And so, we were treated to the specter of President Clinton. And what for me is, was a moral atrocity committed while he was in office. What he did with a young woman. And then, under oath, committing perjury, lying about it. Or Al Gore who just had a habit of just saying he was at places he wasn't, inventing the internet, doing all sorts of crazy stuff that he never did. Well, in the Bible, that's called lying. And he did it when his lips moved. The liberals are not good enough. The Democrats are not good enough. And all you Republicans are just saying, right on, baby. But the conservatives aren't either. The Republicans aren't either. And so I could give you a number of examples of that. I'll give you a few. But just in recent memory, we've had the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who prosecuted a war, by all accounts, by his own testimony, on the cheap. Let's do it with small and quick forces. And let's see how this works. Really. I'm glad I did not have a son or daughter old enough to go in the theater of war to do it on the cheap. To satisfy the experiments of one in charge. Or Tom DeLay. Who took bribes, or at least got many favors from those on K Street, in return for what he did on Capitol Hill. It's not just those who are in office. I'll give you one more in Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney, before he was vice president, worked for Halliburton. 
Halliburton got many of the contracts for our wars overseas. But then there are the commentators. Bill O'Reilly settles a phone sex suit by a former employee out of court. Rush reveals a drug addiction. William Bennett, who wrote the Book of Virtues, reveals a gambling addiction. The list could go on and on and on. And forgive the grammar, friends, but ain't none of them good enough. And we're going to see in a bit who is good enough. But for now, let's understand, biblically, none of them were good enough. And the conservatives and the liberals in our day are not good enough. They're not good enough, and secondly, they're not smart enough. In the 1960s, we had the conceit of the Kennedy administration. There was a phrase coined at that time called the best and the brightest. And President Kennedy brought around himself a relatively young staff, as he was young himself, and they were dubbed the best and the brightest, the so-called whiz kids. But the best and the brightest and the whiz kids got us deeper and deeper into Vietnam. And further, we have a new and young administration now, just two years old. I'm going to read you some excerpts from an article in the New York Times from two years ago. I saved it because I was amazed at the optimism with which this columnist wrote about the new, newly elected administration. And I wanted to find out two years or four years later how it stood up. So let me read to you from David Brooks' column in the New York Times on November 21st of 2008, just a few weeks after the election. And here's part of what he said. January 20, 2009, Inauguration Day, will be a historic day. Barack Obama, and then he gives the academic credentials of all the people he's going to mention. Barack Obama, Columbia and Harvard Law School, will take the oath of office, and his wife, Michelle, Princeton and Harvard Law School, will be looking on proudly. Nearby, his foreign policy advisors will stand beaming, including Hillary Clinton from Wellesley at Harvard and Yale Law School, and Jim Steinberg, Harvard-Yale, Susan Rice, Stanford and Oxford, and the domestic policy team will be there too, including Jason Furman, Harvard, and a PhD at Harvard, Austin Goolsby, Yale, MIT, Blair Levin, Yale and Yale, Peter Orzag, Princeton, the London School of Economics, and of course White House Counsel Greg Craig, Harvard and Yale, he says. This truly will be an administration that looks like America, or at least that slice of America that got double 800s on their SATs. Even more than past administrations, this will be a valedictocracy. Ruled by those who graduate first in their high school classes. If a foreign enemy, he says humorously, if a foreign enemy attacks the United States during the Harvard-Yale game, we're screwed. Then he goes on to he goes on to describe this team of people. He says, you know, they seem to be open-minded individuals. They're all admired professionals. None of them are excessively partisan. They're not ideological. And then he ends with this. Now believe me, I'm not trying to join in the vast, heaving euphoria now sweeping the country. But the personnel decisions have been superb. The events of the past two weeks should be reassuring to anybody who feared that Obama would veer to the left. 
or would suffer self-inflicted wounds because of his inexperience. He's off to a start that nearly justifies the hype. That was two years ago. And now, two years later, the economic team has all headed for the bushes. No pun intended. They've headed for the weeds. They've left. They've resigned. And by all accounts, Tuesday is going to be a reckoning of how smart all of our Harvard and Yale friends were. Now, that could have applied to a Republican administration as well. My point to you is, friends, they're not good enough, and despite what they think, they're also not smart enough as well. Not good enough. Not smart enough. What is the problem, then, with government? It is those who govern. But secondly, in your outline, it's not only those who govern, but it is those who are governed. The populace, the voters, us. And I like to talk bad about other people. I hate it when it includes me. And so it's one thing for me to talk about those in government. I'm not in government. And how they're not good enough and how they're not smart. And now I come to this category of those who are governed. And here's what I really want to do. I want to divide it up. And I want to say those who are governed are them and there's us. I want to say that there are some who are governed who are not good enough. But we're going to see it applies to all of us, including those of us here. But we want to focus on the fat cats. Well, sure, they're not good enough. They've been stealing our money the last several years. The last administration, many of us might believe, let them do it without proper regulations and so on. And so they've been taking our money and they've been getting rich off it. Well, you know what? There have been some people getting seriously, seriously rich. Fat cats. Let me just give you one example. There's an article uh, written uh, a couple of uh, years ago that asks satirically, are you capable of taking a perfectly good 150-year-old company and turning it into dust? If so, you may not be earning up to your full potential. You should be raking it in like Richard Fold, longtime chief of Lehman Brothers. In 2007, Richard Fold earned $45 million in one year. That amounts to roughly $17,000 an hour. And what's his major accomplishment? He obliterated the firm. If you're willing to drive a company into the ground for less than that, then apply by calling Lehman and they give the phone number. One of our broad national problems, the article went on to say, is rising inequality. And it's exacerbated by corporate executives helping themselves to shareholders' cash. Now hear the stat. Three decades ago, CEOs typically earned 30 to 40 times the income of ordinary workers. Now that's mammoth in itself. 40 times more, more than what the average person makes. That was 30 years ago. Today, the average is 344 times more than the average worker. And so we say, what's the problem with government? Those who are governed, and we got the fat cats, it's those guys. And it does include those guys. Those guys are greedy. But it includes regular folk as well. Look at Proverbs 14. 
Proverbs 14. Verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And friends, by any measure, the populace of our country does not fit the description of Proverbs 14.34 as a righteous nation. We are a nation, we are a people, we are a culture that has run hard after sensuality and sin and immorality. And we look at why our country is in the situation it's in and we can point the finger to them, but the Bible points the finger to us and our own immorality. Now one of the great things about our system is that it was founded by some guys who understood the frailties, that's to put it kindly, the sinfulness of those who would be governed. And so they put together a system to keep in check the sinfulness of, of people. Let me read to you an excerpt from a book called The American Political Tradition that talked about the Founding Fathers' view of the hoi polloi. That's just you and me, just the, the populace. It said, The Founding Fathers looked to their own Christian heritage of the idea of original sin. And they found confirmation of the notion that man is an unregenerate rebel who has to be controlled. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. Private vices could be public benefits. An economically beneficent result would be providentially or naturally achieved if self-interest were left free from state interference and allowed to pursue its ends. Now, that's wordy, but here's what it's saying. People are sinners. People are greedy. Greedy people will try to make more money. That'll make the economic engine go. It's turned out to be true. And it's true of you, and it's true of me, as much as it's true of Richard Fold. The Bible teaches that every one of us fits into this category of the unregenerate, sinful person who may have different circumstances to express that sinfulness as Fold does, but nonetheless it has the same root in each one of us. Further, they devised a system that was based on the notion that the government should just let these vices go and hope they don't have too many negative effects. And so there was the statement variously attributed. Some say Thomas Jefferson said it. That's not clear. But the government governs best. That governs, governs least. But because it's not just those who govern, but it also includes those who are governed as the problem. We are facing in America now something very similar to what the Roman Empire faced in the 5th century. In talking about what happened with the Roman Empire, one commentator said this, great nations rise and fall. And the people go from, and here's the, follow this, people go from bondage to spiritual truth to great courage and from courage to liberty, and from liberty to abundance. 
Now, if it stopped there, it would all be good. People go from bondage to spiritual truth to great courage, from courage to liberty, and from liberty to abundance. But then, from abundance to selfishness. And from selfishness to complacency. And from complacency to apathy. From apathy to dependence. And from dependence back again to bondage. That is precisely what happened to the Roman Empire. And it is precisely what's happening in America as well. It's precisely what befalls all human governments because of the malady, the sinfulness described there of the governed, not just those who govern. And how do we express this? Again, here's a quote that is variously attributed. I don't, so we can't identify exactly who said it, but here's a wise saying. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. You know what largesse is? Stuff. Money for us. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. Now, I'm not making a prediction, but you all know how old we are right now. And so, what is the problem then with government? It is those who govern, and it is also those who are governed. But I say in your outline as well that there is a solution, and we want to look at that solution together in just a bit. But before we do, let me just make some application of this to us and what's going on in in our day. Friends, because this is the case, because the problem with government is both those who govern and those who are governed, then we need to have a proper understanding of the role of government, what it can do and what it cannot do. The reason we stay awake at night and we search and we research and we argue and we worry about is because we've attributed too much to government. We believe that government can do things that God never designed it to do. So I want us to look at some passages of Scripture. I'm going to put them on the screen behind me so that we can have a proper perspective on what God says about the role of government. One of them is is simply this, that we need to honor the government. We need to thank God for the government. Despite all its imperfections, we need to thank God that he instituted it and he gave it to us. Where do I see that in scripture? 1 Peter 2, 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God honor the king. Now at the time that was written, they had an emperor, they had a a king. The Roman Empire was in charge. I've been reminded more than once by some of you, but Ken, we don't have a king. I know I look stupid, but I know that part. I know we don't have a king, and I'm glad about that. But if God said, now get this, if God said at the time the Roman Empire was in charge, 
fear God and honor the king. If we were to do that in that situation, simply argue from the less to the greater. How much more then are we to revere the gift that God has given us in government in our day? Romans 13 says this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against, rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what's right, he'll commend you. For he is God's servant, to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. They killed people with the sword. The Bible in the New Testament commends that, by the way. He's God's servant, an, angel, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. I know that many of you have really gotten riled up about our current government. And you're ready to revolt. You're ready to re rebel. In the title of today's message, at the top of your outline, some of you have been talking about a revolution. And I would caution you in the strongest terms, from the Word of God, that even a bad government is better than no government. Further, do you know who was in charge at the time that was written? A fellow named Nero. Some of you know him from history. Nero fiddled as Rome burned, you may recall. Blamed the burning of Rome on Christians. Had Christians killed. And it's while he's on the throne that these words are written. Submit to the authorities. Many of you have taken an approach that says, I submit to the authorities when they're good authorities. God doesn't say that. And if you think about it logically, if I only submit to the authorities when I agree with them, then there's no need to submit, right? Submission implies disagreement, does it not? They do stuff I don't like. They have the authority to do stuff I don't like. And so what's the problem with the government? Well, it is those who govern, and it is those who are governed as well. Now, for those of you that are saying to yourself, is that unlimited? Can the government do anything? Can it command us to do whatever it wants? Of course not. And we have examples of that in Scripture. The first followers of Jesus, the apostles, were told to stop preaching the message of Jesus. They said, God has told us directly to do this. We must obey God rather than men. But it is only when the government tells us we cannot do what God has told us to do, or we must cease doing what God has told us to do, that we rebel. In the meantime, what recourse do we have? The example given in Scripture is this. I call it respectful appeal. Respectful appeal. Paul one of Jesus' first followers, a prominent figure in your New Testament, 
Paul was often called before magistrates and ruling authorities because of his preaching of Jesus, unjustly arrested and imprisoned. But it's instructive how he handled those situations. In Acts 26, he was before one such magistrate. Here's what he says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations. I beg you to listen to me patiently. Notice his respectful appeal. And then later in that chapter, another magistrate intervenes, one named Festus, and Paul responds to him and calls him most excellent Festus. Notice he doesn't call him dude. This is the depth to which we have sunk when we forget the exalted position that God gives government. All government. Whether you agree with them or not. Paul certainly did not agree with these guys. He was under arrest unjustly. But he engaged in respectful appeal. And so friends, that's what we must do. Seeing it as a gift from God to us. Difficult though it be, wrong though it be for sure many times. A gift from God for good for us. Approaching it with respectful appeal. When you talk about our government in my presence, whoever happens to be in power, I will ask you to speak respectfully. Res speak respectfully of a democratic president, of a republican president, a libertarian, any other third party. Whoever is in charge, we are going to do what God has said. Even if we disagree. And one of the reasons we haven't been it's because we place too much trust in government. Notice what the Bible says. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. You see, friends, what we have been doing is we've been putting so much of our currency in what the government can do for us Rather than understanding, the government is a limited tool in the hands of a sovereign God. And it is God whom we trust, not that whoever happens to be in power at the time. When we do this, we're implicitly doing this. We are making the here and now and the material world more important than the spiritual. The reason we lay awake at night, the reason we fret, the reason we worry, the reason we, the reason we argue, the reason we think the world is, is going to fall apart if the election doesn't go the way we want it to go, the reason we do that is because we are overly concerned about our material well-being, our physical well-being. When the Bible over and over again says, look, don't worry about the physical material stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Jesus said this in Matthew 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You see implicit in what Jesus is saying, the soul is more important than the body. The immaterial is more important than the material. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
because we place such import on the physical and the material and the here and now, we put too much gravity in who's in charge. Rather than understanding, no matter what happens on Tuesday or two years from now, the one who was in charge will still be in charge. Almighty God. And that's why our God says this. The psalmist says, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? And it's said over and over again. Psalm 56 again, In God I'll trust, I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, The Lord is with me, I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then in your New Testament, in Hebrews, this is quoted. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So we don't place our trust in princes and in the government, exalting the physical and the material and the here and now. We trust our God who's ultimately on the throne. And apart from whom Barack Obama or George Bush or anybody else can so much as breathe, let alone make decisions that affect you and me. Romans 8, the Bible simply says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? If you read Romans 8, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all centered on Christ. If I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then what else really matters? Now think about that. If God is for us, who can be against us? Are you kidding? All kinds of people can be against us, right? All kinds of people are against us. Hebrews 13 says, I will not be afraid. That's just two chapters after Hebrews 11, where you have this recounting, a catalog of all of these things that happened, horrendous things that happened to God's people. But here's what Paul is saying in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying, if I have a relationship with God in Christ, and I have the hope of eternity with Him, and I know that He is on the throne, no matter who is against me, what does it ultimately matter? Compared to that, what does it matter? It's of relative importance, but nothing close to ultimate importance. And so lastly in your outline, the problem with government is those who govern, and the problem with government is those who are governed, and the solution to government is this. It's new citizens. We need new citizens. You say, I'm down with that. Stop this immigration stuff. We'll be fine. That's not what I'm talking about. See, because immediately when you identify a group of people who are the problem, you're going to contribute to the mess that we are in and have been in, in our political climate. We need new citizens, meaning we need citizens who are made new. Because, see, friends, the problem is an inside job. The problem with Richard Fold, the former chief of Lehman Brothers, is his heart. The problem with Bill Clinton was his heart. The problem with Newt Gingrich is his heart. With Tom DeLay, it's his heart. 
The problem with every person who comes into this world and every person into America is an inside job. It's our hearts and what is needed as a solution are citizens who are made new from the inside out. And how does that happen? That happens only one way. Through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's why it's our job as Christians and through this church not to be a political outlet for anybody. Never, no how, no way. But to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Where people are changed and then they go into their world and they make change. The solution is new citizens. Citizens who are made new by the gospel of Christ. And then secondly, be in your outline. The solution is a new ruler. Because remember, the problem was those who govern and those who are governed. And both need to be changed from the inside out. Now, we are in the process of one person at a time seeing citizens made new. And seeing Jesus Christ enthroned in the hearts of those who come to him, one by one. But here's the great news. There's coming a day in which King Jesus will return. And King Jesus will set up his kingdom. And his kingdom won't look like a Republican administration or a Democratic administration. It will be an administration of righteousness throughout his world. And an absolutely righteous king governing those who are righteous themselves because of what he has done for them. And so the solution is this in your take-home truth. King Jesus fixes the problem. And he is the solution. He's the ultimate solution and he is the immediate solution. He's the solution ultimately then, he's the solution now. He's the solution for our country, he's the solution for you. And so I invite you to come to him. It's an inside job. Only He can change you. How do you do that? You realize who you are and who I am. We are part of the problem because we are sinners. You recognize what He did for you. He died on the cross to pay the penalty in full for your sin and my sin. Such that all of our sins are covered past and present and future, but they have, has to be applied to you individually. And so it's applied to you individually when you come to Him. Acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, you cannot change yourself. Recognizing that He did the work that only He can do to pay the penalty and only He can change you. And so thirdly, I say there on the screen, you repent. You say, Lord, I want to now follow you. But I need you to help me from the inside out be able to follow you. And I receive Jesus Christ. We're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, if you have never come to God through Jesus Christ, I encourage you to pray from your heart to God in your own words. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm part of the problem. I know that Jesus is the solution to my personal problem, to our society's problem. And so I ask you to save me. I want to follow you with my life. And he promises to begin that inside work in you, making you a new creation. Let's bow together.
Father, we thank you that we could look at this important and yet difficult issue because of things that are going on in our culture. You know all about them. And Lord, as I said earlier, we've adopted, I've adopted thoughts that are contrary to your word about government and our role within it and what the problem and solution are. So thank you for the corrective of the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for giving us light so that we don't have to grope in darkness, for telling us clearly that government was your idea. You gave it. You gave it for good purposes. For telling us clearly that no matter what the earthly king does, our heavenly father is on his throne. And so we need not fret. We need not worry. We must not prioritize the physical, the here and now, the material. But we must focus upon the spiritual, the one who is, who is unseen, whose work is seen all around us. And have full faith, full trust, full confidence that you're working your will in and through every person that you used, even those who don't know you, who don't want to know you. They're tools in your hand. Everything is moving exactly according to your timetable. There is coming a day according to a timetable known only to you when King Jesus will return. Lord, we look forward to that time. Surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But in the meantime, help us to live as citizens of another kingdom. And help us to be diligent about giving the gospel message to those who need to gain entrance to that kingdom. To be translated from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. I pray that that's happening. That translation, that conversion is happening right now in the hearts of some who are here. Lord, we will honor you and we will praise you for all that you do through us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.